at about three in the morning, the guards in the prison came and the autopsy report showed that he had cut his left arm on the inside of the elbow as though he was trying to actually cut off his arm. So right there in the bend. This is your nautical lantern on the dangerous seas of darkness. Let's push off from the placid shore of the status quo and explore what's beyond the horizon. I am your host, BT, and this is Truth and Shadow, your podcast of the supernatural. In this gripping episode, we invite you to join us on a relentless pursuit of truth as we delve into the depths of the unseen, expose sinister agendas, and shed light on the shadowy corners of demonology. As we navigate through the intricate web of mystery, our commitment to revealing the truth remains unwavering. Listeners, your participation is crucial in this pursuit of truth. Together, we confront the unknown, challenge the status quo, and investigate the sinister forces which prefer to manipulate mankind. The unraveling of each layer brings us closer to a clearer understanding of this unseen world around us. Prepare for an immersive experience as we piece together fragments of information, connecting the dots that lead us to revelations and unveilings. In this ongoing investigation, we aim not merely to inform, but also empower, encourage, You are a dedicated audience to question, analyze, and engage in the pursuit of a more transparent and just reality. We have spoken at length about the Divine Host. The last full episode we spent diving into the Angelic and their relationship to the Godhead. In this episode, and those like it, we want to examine the evidence that forces of evil are more than simply Satan and his minions but an entire sinister spawn of menacing, malicious malcontents seeking to entice us away from our purpose, corrupting our image, as we are the adopted sons and daughters of the Most High. For too long have we sat idly by and allowed the lettered to tell us one thing while the documents tell us another. Going forward, I propose that the evil entities called demons are not fallen angels. Don't get me wrong, angels fell from on high. But the demon? These are unclean spirits of the Nephilim. They are the cursed, and made to roam this world looking for a body to inhabit. When we dive into the texts of scripture and take them at their word, we are faced with two options. To accept the opinion traced to one man who converted from a heretical group that once worshipped the angelic host, namely Augustine, or acknowledge that there was a divine council, and the Torah itself is full of information regarding the heavenly court. Thus, we will be exposing and examining this idea. We will explore every corner, 
nook, and cranny for all evidence that shows that this existed. Meanwhile, in this particular episode, we will explore the effects of the sinister forces, learning about how they interact with man, and rest assured that when we evict them and stay true to the Lord, they flee forever. Who then are the sinister forces? They are the fallen host that fell with Satan and those watchers who fell at Mount Hermon. They are comprised of several entities the world once worshipped as gods. The entities of Canaan to the pantheon of Greece and Egypt. These malicious beings sought to usurp the rightful worship due to God Most High alone. That is, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Once proud to keep charge over the children of man, two hundred of the host of watchers deigned to look upon the daughters of man with lust. And in doing so, they shed their heavenly bodies. The Greek word is okaterion, such that in Jude 1.6, it writes of their deprived sexual sin and how they left their heavenly station. As Genesis 6.2 says, they took wives of whom they chose and bore sons to them. This thing they shed, this okotarion, becomes the reward for Christians at the resurrection, which is what they gain, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.2. We grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. And so it was the angels took it off, so that they can mate with humans. But know now, that when those watchers had offspring, the children were called Nephilim, and they were killed in the flood. Their spirits, unclean, and had no dwelling rights in heaven, nor did they have a rightful place in hell below. Instead, as a curse, they were forced to roam the deserts looking for a body to possess. Venturing into the realm of ancient Greece, we encounter a pantheon of gods, whose stories intertwine with the fallen angels and the cosmic struggle for supremacy. From the monarchy of the Titans, where the Titans clashed with the Olympian gods, to the enigmatic figures of Prometheus and Pandora, Greek myths echo themes of rebellion, punishment, and the consequence of divine disobedience. As we unravel these tales, we find echoes of the fallen hosts seeking to disrupt the divine order providing us with yet another cultural tapestry where the threads of mythology and the sinister forces converge. In ancient Mesopotamia, tablets recount the divine beings descending to earth, mirroring the narrative of fallen angels. The Epic of Gilgamesh, often paralleled with biblical stories, hints at a connection between the civilization and celestial entities. Turn our gaze towards Egypt, ancient Egypt, we uncover a rich fabric of gods, goddesses that, upon closer inspection, reveal a complex interplay with the fallen host of angels and the divine council. From the enigmatic figure of Set, often associated with chaos and discord, to the tales of to the tales of gods waging cosmic battles. Egyptian mythology offers a fascinating lens into the struggle between divine forces 
and those who sought to undermine the cosmic order. The intricate hieroglyphs on the temple walls and the myth passed down through the generations provide a unique perspective on how these sinister entities were both feared and revered in the annals of ancient history. Examining the influence of Second Temple Judaism, we find profound impact on the understanding of celestial beings and their connection to sinister forces. During this era, the Jewish community grappled with interpreting scriptures and navigating a complex spiritual landscape. The echoes of the fallen angels, the Nephilim, and their rebellious actions resonated in the minds of the Second Temple Jew. The Book of Enoch, a collection of ancient texts not included in the canonical scriptures, further expounded on the interactions between heavenly beings and earthly affairs. Scholars and thinkers of this period sought to reconcile the traditional understanding of heavenly host angels with the narratives that portrayed them as rebels. The Qumran community associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls engaged in a deep exploration of these themes, shedding light on their theological reflections of the cosmic drama that unfolded in their worldview. In summary, the influence of fallen angels and sinister forces during the Second Temple period shaped theological discourse, prompting a nuanced interpretation of scripture and exploration of the unseen realm. The echoes of these ancient mythologies reverberated through the theological corridors of Second Temple Judaism, leaving an indelible mark on the evolving understanding of celestial beings and their role in the cosmic struggle. Not a single account of this data occurred in a vacuum. The cultural exchange between peoples in the ancient world was traded just as much as pepper or salt. Our investigation leads to researchers who have looked upon artifacts of evil, studied the idols left behind by those people who once called them gods. Perhaps now we can start to put the pieces together and find hope that we're not alone in this fight. That there are those who have offered prayers, have offered solace, offered thanksgiving, and a God who in our corner can defeat any of the unclean spirits, can chain up the fallen, and can send his son to be our guide and savior from death. guest on Truth and Shadow Podcast, and she's here to talk about her research into the dark recesses of the human psyche, puzzling out the mysterious beliefs of the distant and the departed. She's a historian of the human mind, an internationally published author, professor, and host of the Midnight Academy Podcast. She is the renegade archaeologist, the ancestral antiquarian, the illuminator of the imagination, Dr. Heather Lynn, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It is a great honor to be here. In the podcast, we've been talking about 
Second Temple Judaism and as it relates to angels and, and demons, actually. And your book, Evil Archaeology, which came out, so 2019? Yeah, I think it has been that long now. Yep. It's been that long. And <laughs> I'd, I'd read it. I'd read it in 2020 after hearing an interview of you on another podcast back in 2020. And I had found the book illuminating, especially the parts where we talk about it was King James and his demonology. Very interesting case here. It's sort of where we start to get this idea of early modern demonology kind of gives us a look at uh, some of the maybe tropes and things that we get in this modern era. Uh, so it's, it takes it into a different realm, sort of as opposed to the Near Eastern and uh, those traditional things. It kind of gives us this Western feel that we see then repeated throughout uh, modern culture and contemporary culture and pop culture and all of that. And so it starts to take on some familiar sort of visions. So, but King James himself, he was a monarch and, and known as a witch hunter, which might sound funny, but in his lifetime, he ruled Scotland and England and he wrote a lot about demonology and witchcraft. Uh, he was known for interrogating the witches. So he had this fixation on demon hunting in particular, and he sort of started this whole witchcraft, witch trial thing. Not the witch trials from Salem, per se, but just this whole ethos of going after witches. And, and something to point out, too, is historically, the people of the time, the, the regular people, they weren't as interested in finding the witches. He had sort of a beef, personal beef, about the uh, idea that a witch was involved in casting some sort of attack on him. And so he had a lot of different uh, ideas about witchcraft and demonology, and uh, it didn't necessarily translate into the common people. However, they ended up sort of getting into that frenzy as well. So it was sort of ruling from above and trickling down, but it was really King James who started this real push to look for the witches and put them on trial and this sort of thing. It became this complete fervor to just stamp out witches. Scotland's witch hunting is uh, very well documented through court records and this sort of thing. And so we can see that it really picks up. And this was right around the, um, between the 15th century and the, even the 18th century, you know, so we're looking at that early modern period. He, he like I said, he had a, a sort of a personal issue. He had a, a curse that he felt was put on him. He stayed in Denmark for a while with, uh, with his wife. When they went on a voyage, the royal fleet went back to Scotland, and then there was this huge storm. And so James and his wife almost capsized, and another ship was completely lost. And so at that moment, it was said, it was told to him that a coven of witches uh, had conspired with the, the devil to cause that storm in the hopes that they would kill both James and his new wife. Mm -hmm. So at that point, he decided that it would be all of the witches that would pay for this. This sort of starts that whole view of him going into finding the witches who are responsible. And you got to remember, too, King James, King James Bible, he was a very devout, devout man. And right. so this to him was, was not only personal at this point, but it was this moral obligation for him to look for the witches and get them gone. And this correlates back to the idea 
in Christianity specifically that this idea of demons are part of the religious furniture, isn't it? I would I would say so. I, you know, I, I would think that's that's an interesting way to put it. Actually, yeah, it, it, a little different than than how the very ancient people saw demons. Um, so this is where we have that turn that starts to take in um, pushing into the early modern that sort of forms how we think of demonology to this day. Right. And if we, if we were to backtrack and we were to look backwards in time, say Socrates, he talked about the personal daemon mm-hmm. being, a, being basically what we would equivalent to a guardian angel of sorts. How would the ancients themselves examine demons? I mean, because we read about in Mesopotamia, we've got Pazuzu, you mentioned that. And evil archaeology was a big impact on you. We see it in the movie The Exorcist. But more importantly, we see Pazuzu and then Lamashtu, these two competing demons. And it's kind of an interesting story. Yes, I, I do focus on that in the book a bit. I did find it to be an interesting story uh, because it challenges sort of our view of what demons are. And you, you made a good point with the Socrates having a personal daemon. That's even reflected in this sort of trajectory of Western thought. It wasn't until much later that we kind of take it into this realm of demons being evil and angels being good completely. It was a little murkier in the past. And uh, if you remember, the, the term uh, angel fits more with malach. It just meant messenger. Mm-hmm. And so there were these concepts of angels and demons that held a significant theological and just overall cultural importance in the past like this. And they were, in, in a lot of ways, like some of the ancient gods. You know, I always joke that in uh, even ancient Greece, you wouldn't have a bracelet that would say, what would Zeus do? Because you wouldn't emulate Zeus and his behavior because he was murderous and <laughs> he right. raped, he was drunk. So this idea of you know, religion and these religious figures being somehow something moral or something to look to, um, it was just not quite the same as we have it now. So in the past, it was similar with angels and demons insofar as that they were messengers of God. Um, But messengers, they had their own personas, they had their own sort of strengths and weaknesses, and and they caused fear, of course, because they're otherworldly beings. But there were some beliefs that you could sort of control them or manipulate them even or persuade them to do either your bidding or to just work with you. So in some ways, they were seen as just a real, uh, nuanced and benign sort of life that, you know, could take on different forces here or there. And each of them had their own, we'll say, personalities. Some of the demons, some of the angels even, they maybe were lesser while other ones were responsible for large you know, storms or cataclysmic events. Uh, so it's just a little bit different than how we think of it now is just, you know, now uh, we tend to want to think of it in that somatic, um, cinematic way with demons being kind of grotesque and frightening and they're always just doing bad, whereas angels are, you know, of course, anthropomorphic. They're usually blonde-haired and glowing and in a dress and female and, you know, and these were just not the case. And so in the case of Pazuzu and his wife Lamashtu, well, they're they're both pretty ugly creatures. It kind of tracks with that idea of a demon, but they that you could work with them in in a way, at least put one against the other. So you could manipulate them or even trick them. In that instance, Pazuzu, he was the husband of Lamashtu, as you mentioned, and Lamashtu was not able in the story to have her own children. 
and this angered her. And so what she would do is she would be responsible for killing the children of parents, usually newborns. Sometimes she would cause miscarriages. And so that sort of connection lasted. So their solution to this, and this was a way to explain, of course, sudden infant death and all of these different things. And so the solution was, well, we need to get Pazuzu, her husband, to keep her in line because you know, in, in the culture and the period, it was very patriarchal in that way. And so you would say, hey, Pazuzu, you know, come and get your wife. So what they would do is try to offer something to Pazuzu, try to say, you know, punish your wife and do us a favor. And so you'll see a lot of depictions of this, this picture sort of of uh, Pazuzu with a whip and he's, he's whipping his wife and telling her to, you know, get away from the human children. Right. It was so much that they would make these little plaques or they would even have amulets to wear of Pazuzu for pregnant women, which mm-hmm. is it's frightening. They're very ugly. They're very, you know, but yeah, you they're wanted They're grotesque, it. right? They were, absolutely. And, and in a way, you wanted them to be as such because it would be frightening to Lamash too. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's, it's just a little bit different than, you know, how we would think because now we would look at uh, Pazuzu and think, oh, gosh, I, I don't want any part of that. But we wouldn't think that by sort of engaging with that, we could use it to our advantage. That's one way to look at it. And there are just many other types of, of views of their hierarchies and the different types. Uh, so it wasn't quite as cut and dry. Mostly, yes, they were evil, but they were more akin to human beings, but just with bigger power. Humans insofar as that they were nuanced and they had free will, and so they could choose to do something good or choose to do something bad because they saw humanity as a competitor. Yeah, so there's this idea that the putting up the grotesque Pazuzu is a correlation with what we do, gargoyles, for example, on Gothic churches. Definitely. Something that I found really fun in evil archaeology was this part where you talk about the Second Temple period. And the Jews, they're coming back and they bring with them this particular demon mentioned in the Talmud, uh, Shed Bet HaKais, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. He's the Akkadian demon Sulak, the privy demon. Yes. <laughs> the, the toilet. <laughs> the, the privy demon, also known um, in a more vulgar term as perhaps the toilet demon. <laughs> yes. It is, and it's but we it's it's just another example of uh, you know how prevalent these entities were, these spirits were to the daily lives of the people of the time. So they they lived with them. They understood that they existed. So mm-hmm. here in in our contemporary period, we would look out and think, well, you know, angels, demons. Even if you believe in angels and demons, they somehow reside in this other realm. But to the ancient people, particularly in in the ancient Near East. They were right there with them at all times. And you could argue now, perhaps they are still with us at all times, but our just views of it have, have changed. So a good example of this would be the um, the toilet demon or the privy mm-hmm. demon or right. Tulak. Um, and so it's this demon that uh, would essentially attack you when you were in the toilet. <laughs> so um, there's a couple of, one, it's funny. <laughs> Two. It's probably uh, Montezuma's revenge, isn't it? You know? <laughs> absolutely. Um, but two, I think it points to 
something else to understand about the viewpoint of demons during that time. Uh, it seems very superstitious and something to uh, just maybe ridicule. That, oh, they, they were superstitious and they didn't understand science and so they explained it via demons. And it's like, well, yes, and what's wrong with that? Because it was sort of a precursor to scientific thinking. They were trying to explain what happened. And so uh, one of the theories is that they noticed that certain people would go to the toilet and maybe not come back. <laughs> they would die. There's this big assumption that the people in the ancient world were backwards. They were just as real as any of us living today trying to understand the world as it existed. So they're not so backwards. I mean, yeah, they might not have had the same kind of technological ideas. They couldn't go to Google to find an answer. <laughs> and they had to meet with whatever traditions they had. Yeah. I've talked a little bit about the Nephilim spirits in some of the pseudepigraphical texts. They call them the bastard spirits. And within your text of evil archaeology, you you go over some of the Egyptian gods. And one of one is uh, Amit and is the soul leader. This entity is really peculiar to me because he could take these people's souls who are big sinners and they basically make them wander around the earth for basically eternity. And it really sounds similar to the way the bastard spirits of the, the Book of Enoch and the way mm -hmm. the Nephilim work. Yeah, and, and it is, you know, important to remember that the this none of this happened in a vacuum. And mm -hmm. so these people all throughout time had had trade and sh shared ideas and albeit it might have been uh, less efficient than we do it now but word got around and people shared their ideas and they shared their religious views to certain extents and uh, this was something that you know we do see sort of over and over again this idea that there were ghosts or spirits that somehow left the world in a, a way that was undesirable or tragic or something sad something sad or, or even sinister so those spirits would then walk. So it's very similar to what we have now, this idea of ghosts. I mean, generally, when you when you hear about a, a ghost haunting a house, um, aside from what seems to be the, the idea that they're always from the uh, 1800s, aside from that, they, um, they seem to have always died a tragic death or a violent death. Uh, it wasn't like, well, you know, I've died peacefully in my sleep and now I'm haunting your house. It's usually something that makes it so that they're not at peace and then they have to roam. And so it's... It's uh, perhaps just a, a way anthropologically that we grapple with the feelings of dread that we may feel when we feel that we're encountering such a spirit. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it could be a projection. It could be such. But it is interesting to see that very, very similar uh, ideas here. But yeah, Amit uh, was another in a way, a grotesque, too, is depicted with the head of a crocodile and mm -hmm. uh, front body of a, a lion. And back took the form of a hippo. And uh, this was a sort of amalgamation of what the Egyptians thought were the most dangerous animals, and rightfully so. And so they thought, well, what's the most horrible and brutal creature we can put together? And psh, there was Amit. There, yeah, she's considered, strangely, though, too, um, like Sekhmet, uh, if you're familiar with Sekhmet, too. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, these are protectors. So even Amit, who is frightening, Amit was doing doing the Lord's work, so to speak, uh, doing something to instill the principle of Mat, which Mat uh, was a principle and and its own goddess. It was personified as uh, a being, a human type being, um, also an ostrich feather. 
um, and a principle. Mm-hmm. So it had this sort of three-natured sense to it. So, But overall, it was the principle of justice. And so even though this horrible creature was doing horrible things to these souls, and it was sort of seeking that justice. So again, it, it was demonic, but there was some sort of sense and order to it. There's a lot more usual story that goes along or explanation or rationalization. And like we mentioned about the toilet demon, uh, you know, back to that, the, uh, the way that they were viewing the world, they were trying to explain some of these issues and they were close, you know, they started having like maybe a diagnostic set of criteria that would say, okay, you're more likely to be attacked by this, this so-called toilet demon if you are male, older, perhaps overweight, And these Mm -hmm. things were documented. And so if you think, well, what would all of that have in common? I mean, you could say, well, you know, much like Elvis, uh, you know, people. (laughs) Absolutely. There you go. Yeah. He was attacked by the toilet demon. That's exactly it. So they were trying to figure out their world. And I I don't think that it's, um, and who's to say too, that that spirit, I mean, these are forces. I mean, we, we think of them as spirits, like ghosts, but these were words uh, for forces of nature. I'm so, you know, cardiovascular disease culminating in an event on the toilet that ended it all. I think that's definitely a force beyond our immediate control. So I wouldn't fault them a bit. But yeah, poor Elvis. We're drawing a line. We're kind of proving that the idea of otherworldly forces or unexplainable sinister forces exist in the world. And they're part of people's day-to-day living. And that means we started with our conversation with King James because I wanted to show something in the medieval era. And then we went back to Mesopotamia. We went through Second Temple period. And now I want to talk about one particular story. This man, this uh, serial killer, believed himself to be sacrificing for a demon or some kind of entity. And he called himself Pazuzu. Yeah, so this this was one of the things that I think... uh, inspired me to write the book overall, believe it or not. Um, initially, it was a bit of The Exorcist, the film. I had always right. been intrigued by the beginning of the film where the priest is at an archaeological excavation in Iraq, and then they pan to what ends up being a statue of Pazuzu. And it's it's not necessarily focused on in the film. It's sort of a passing thing. You do see that image then uh, flashed again later during the exorcism scenes. And I always was intrigued by that because I guess I always had a thing for archaeology, but that, that was, that was interesting. And that movie was frightening and a big part of my life growing up. And, you know, I was raised Catholic. So, you know, that was the forbidden movie. And of course I saw it at probably seven years old, which <laughs> not the time to see the movie, but uh, I did. And it frightened me. So, so that stuck with me and I was very curious. And so I ended up reading the exorcist you know, the book itself. And it talks about the palace of Ashurbanipal and, you know, all of these descriptions of the demon Pazuzu that is a real demon, of course, as we discussed with his wife Lamashtu. Um, And so that inspired me a little bit. It hung out in the back of my mind. And then I was reading a story that came up in my newsfeed some years ago. And it was a story about a a man named Pazuzu. And I thought, Pazuzu, okay, that's an interesting choice of names. So, of course, I looked into it. So this was in 2014. Um, There was a man who legally changed his name. His name was very common. It was John Lawson, okay? (laughs) So then he said, you know what? I'm naming myself Pazuzu Algarad. So why would he do this? Well, 
He struggled with what his mother said were clearly mental health issues. Um, we don't really know the extent of what was going on in his life or what his mental health issues were, but he started going after neighbors, collecting them, so to speak. He would recruit even a sort of group of people that were friends, also maybe disenfranchised, and he got them to help him torture and murder and then eventually cannibalize local strangers from the area. And this happened in North Carolina. And then he started burying them in the backyard of his home, which was actually his mother's home. Mm -hmm. um, and so, of course, when they, when they find this out, they give him the psychiatric uh, workover and there's a report and they talk to him and it all comes out what was going on. And now this, in, and I explain it in the book a little bit, there were pictures and video taken of his house when they went in to find the bodies and, and investigate. And what was what was wild was the uh, they had he had Sumerian markings, mm -hmm. uh, cuneiform, Pazuzu, and other sort of demons, and also Anunnaki. He had occult symbols all over the wall, and it was quite something. Um, he had had his kitchen was where he sort of prepared the bodies for consumption, and the whole thing from just top to bottom was just. Mesopotamian demonology. And so it was clearly disturbing. So in the, in the follow-up psychiatric report, he said that he was practicing a Sumerian religion uh, that involved a monthly blood sacrifice of typically at the time a small animal and is, you know, it would progress into human beings, of course. Uh, he started doing it in what he called the black moon. And he mm -hmm. did this in honor of the demon Pazuzu. And when he says he practiced a Sumerian religion, I you know, there's no indication that he knew what this religion was or right. or what, but he claimed that he had been in contact with Pazuzu, and so he was worshiping Pazuzu. He was doing this for Pazuzu. Mm -hmm. So he was arrested, clearly, and charged with first-degree murder, and he and his girlfriend and some friends that he had help him with this, you know, were all charged and whatnot, and so sent him to prison, you know, for a while, and, and he was waiting on the court arraignment and uh he kept panicking saying you know i need to be able to do my ritual i need i need to appease the demon and they're like yeah okay buddy you know get back in your rubber room and his mother says wait no seriously help my son something's going on and so of course they're not going to listen to him at about three in the morning the guards in the prison came and the autopsy report showed that he had cut his left arm on the inside of the elbow as though he was trying to actually cut off his arm so right there in the bend and he had mm -hmm. perforated his brachial artery, and that's what caused him to bleed to death. They found deep, deep scratches on his chest and arm, and he had rib fractures, and it, but they couldn't determine what had actually killed him, other than that he bled out. Um, right. But they don't know, you know what happened. They couldn't determine if it was a suicide, but that's where they left it. So he said that that was because he wasn't able to do what he needed Perform to do. Perform his ritual, right. And so that got me thinking. I, it was just really struck me because I thought, you know, we're, we're using Pazuzu, for instance. Uh, Pazuzu had this amulet. We have all this evidence about Pazuzu because there's so much cultural material left behind. It was very important to people in ways that we have a hard time maybe grappling with. You know, think about amulets of this ugly creature around a pregnant woman's neck for safety. It just seems preposterous. But then you have this film, The Exorcist, a deeply sort of religious cult classic that is showing what is supposed to be some of the most frightening images and most anti-Christian images to try to rally you up and get you very afraid in this cinematic world. And so they choose Pazuzu and, and here it goes, just Pazuzu, Pazuzu. And I'm like, wow, it just reaches so far into our modern world. But then at the same time, 
here's this guy in North Carolina. Uh, it's not clear as to how he found out about Pazuzu or any of this, but it influenced him to do heinous things against humanity. When people then say, it just got me thinking, when people say, you know, well, there's no such thing as demons. Um, demons are fake. Demons. It's like, well, sure, perhaps in this like biological way, I'm not, you know, one to suggest that I see a demon right in front of me and I'm going to be able to, you know, take a, a culture off of his skin and like look for, for something under a microscope, et cetera. But to steer away for a moment from that strictly materialist viewpoint, it starts to get you thinking, well, does it even matter if there is this materialist basis for a demon? Because it doesn't, in my view, it didn't, because it inspired the actions of this human being to become the demon. So that's, I think that set me off into a whole different way of exploring demons and angels, and even, even strangely enough, perhaps aliens and extraterrestrials. Because I started looking at the situation not so much as uh, these like creatures, these Hollywood creatures, but rather maybe more like thought forms. Clearly they're spiritual beings, but even if you say, let's not talk spiritual, let's get the religion out of it. So, mm-hmm. you know, we usually butt up against materialism and religion, and, and that's, that's fine. These are two different worldviews, but what if we look at it a different way? And so, you know, I started looking at it as... Uh, what they call now discarnate entities. Just this idea that perhaps there's a different dimension, perhaps they are in front of us, that there could be a whole host of explanations potentially, but just to sort of steer the conversation a little bit away from the hardcore materialist or hardcore spiritualist to see if we can find any insight into the true nature of this this phenomena and, and how it's working in our world today, because I do think it works in our world today. And I think that when we relegate ourselves to just simply think of demons as like, you know, little red guys with, uh, you know, curly mustaches and a, a red trident or a poker, then I think it just uh, minimizes the situation and then allows evil to prosper, really. Most people can find your stuff on Amazon. Oh, sure. Yep, absolutely. And Amazon. where else could people find you? Uh, well, I, probably the best place is just my website at www.drheatherlynn.com. And that's uh, L-Y-N-N, drheatherlynn.com. And there I, I have uh, you know some articles. I have my books are available, um, just all sorts of things. So, yeah. And then you recently advertised that you were going to be on Ancient Aliens again. Do you know what time that one's going to to drop is it next I, year 2024 i think i don't know exactly it's the new season coming out so i think they're in the what season 20 it will be yeah um, i don't even know anymore. isn't that wild it's been on forever i know it was so different right. i did it a long time ago and i sort of was like yeah i'm not doing this again I, I i will say i didn't have the best experience for a lot of reasons everybody's great so no no complaints there but uh nice. there was some issue there with you know some uh <laughs> some we'll call them colleagues and this sort of thing and i was like yeah I don't know, but uh, I was glad. Yeah, you got to meet. You got to meet Sukulos. He's pretty awesome. He's oh, the he's, he's the guy. If it's if it's, I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens, right? <laughs> yes, and you know what? People want to like diss him. I know he's the meme guy, <laughs> and I know he's, you know, he seems pretty ridiculous, but he is a genuine person, and he is right. he he knows he's the meme guy. 
he is uh, he he has fun with it, and he looks at it in a way that is like, well, we're reaching people, and I love that. And he's very he's a very uh, genuine person, and so yeah, most everybody there, I just I love I love the people in this field and uh, the 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 uh, producers of Ancient Aliens. There, I will say this: I know you'll see a lot of things online with people saying, well, it's disinformation, or they're just this that, and the other. They have agendas and. I will say from firsthand experience as someone who's very, very skeptical of everybody with agendas, um, the individuals that I've uh, collaborated with there, uh, they really do want to get to the bottom of things and they're free speech advocates and uh, I think the world of them. Uh, And just because they, you know, make an entertaining show, it doesn't mean that they aren't seriously committed to the cause. And so, uh, you know, big props to Ancient Aliens and Prometheus Entertainment. Um, But yeah, yeah, so the episode, I don't have the episode number. I do know that the episode name is called Secrets of the Sumerians. Ooh, that sounds nice. (laughs) Cool. So so are you going to become the, I'm not saying it's demons, but it's demons meme? You know, I'd love to, but hey, I don't think I have the (laughs) hair for that. Not enough hairspray will hold this thing up. (laughs) listening. This is a free podcast based upon the value for value model. If you find value in this or any episode, you can return that value by liking the show, subscribing to this channel, leaving a review, or sharing with a friend on your social media accounts. You can also donate on my website. Thank you again. This is BT for Truth and Shadow Podcast. You are the light in the darkness. (laughs) 